Hello, I'm Paul Mackey, and welcome to One Idget's Thoughts on Podcast. This is a relaunch after the relaunch this past summer on YouTube, so a third launch. A three launch, if you will. If you're a new listener to One Idget's Thoughts, welcome. For everyone else, I'll state the obvious. My old feeds are dead, or are, to all practical purposes, dead. It looks as though the old Ghostlight podcast is still available at the moment, though that is probably of least concern as it remains a completed podcast. The long dormant feed of Idgitcast remains available as well, albeit limited to the very late season 5 onwards. All episodes still exist in the world, but you won't be able to go to the old website to get the old ones anymore. I have yet to come up with a complete plan for Idgitcast past episodes, or potential future episodes either. But this is one Idget's thoughts on. The old feed still exists for now, and there was a whole month of Dog Days of Podcasting 2023 exclusively on YouTube while the whole feed issue was still up in the air. I'll let you all know the whole plan for the relaunch in a minute, so you can go your own way or listen on at that point as feels appropriate. But first of all, I want to thank Nimlas Studios and Nutty specifically for helping get the file hosting plan established and new feed running. I've been trying to get back to the old feed since spring, and YouTube was a poor substitute during dog days, so I honestly do not think I'd be continuing without Nutty's help. The concept behind this show is simple. I watch TV shows and review back to you my thoughts, favorite lines, and additional facts and anecdotes about each episode. The episodes tend to be short. I made one unsuccessful attempt at a longer episode recap style that I've used on other podcasts, and without others to interject, it dragged on far too long. So, for each show, I have a standard set of segments customized to the individual show. So for each show, I have a standard set of segments customized to the individual show. If a show is older, I might give pop culture or historical context. There are short bios of cast or crew members. Some segments are just running gags. For every episode of every show, I eventually sum up what I thought worked and what I found lacking, if anything. So, as I said, the fate of those old shows is still up in the air, but One Idget's Thoughts On is intended to be a full continuity of content. Therefore, the next few episodes you will get in this feed are digests of some of the past content. I'll provide a fresh intro on each digest episode, along with any news or upcoming plans I want to share, and I'll tell you precisely when the remainder of the episode will be previously produced content. Anyone new here will be able to listen for the first time, and if you listened back in the day or during dog days, you can choose to re-listen or just move on with your day, whichever you like. Today, I'll be presenting some of the content from the launch season of the podcast. I began with a trial of fire, Dog Days of Podcasting 2022. Briefly, the Dog Days of Podcasting is a challenge in which podcasters attempt to publish one episode a day for the entire month of August. During August 2022, I published some slice-of-life episodes, replayed a podcast fiction series originally created years ago for another podcast, and looked at every episode of that 80s show, the failed sitcom spinoff that aired concurrently with that 70s show for part of a season. And now I'll present a digest of those episodes, looking at every episode of that 80s show. Begin archive content now. So uh, I'm going to be launching into that 80s show, uh, which is currently all all the episodes, 13 of which are that exist, are on a uh, certain 
tube service. I'm sure you know which one. Uh, I get dicey about actually announcing these things because there have been a couple of aborted attempts at doing things where I've looked up something on that tube service and then gotten excited about telling everybody that it's there and then shortly after I tell everyone it's there it disappears and I don't know if that's because of me or what but it's probably not just me anyways so I'm going to make some predictions I was born in 1973 which means the majority of the 80s is pretty darn clear in my memories a little fuzzier around 80 or 81 maybe but from age 9 onward pretty well remembered I'm going to go mostly in blind, but I did note that the setting is 1984. I'm guessing they're going to play fast and loose with that setting. I think the writers will either not know or not care precisely when trends started, and we will see anachronisms. However, I may not be able to pinpoint trend anachronism as well as I might think. Trends spread a lot more slowly back then. could easily take a year or two for language and style to move to the center center of the country where I lived, so depending on the location of the show... Uh, there could be uh, on point with something that I think it was a later thing. There will probably be election references, you'd imagine, in 1984. Uh, Olympic references, that being the year of both of those. Uh, if they reached out and got some cash from Apple, there might be a Macintosh reference, but I'm guessing uh, not if they didn't get that sweet product placement cash. I'm betting on a Ghostbusters reference to occur as well. Hopefully, though, they managed to make some level of character plot with the flavors of the 80s and not just an effort to cram in as many in-jokes with the modern viewing audience as possible. So uh, that's what I'm thinking. We'll see what happens. Uh, I suppose until then, I'll say happy hunting and run off to watch the pilot episode of that 80s show. Today, we're going to start with that 80s show. Partially because I never saw it when it aired, partially because I'd like to see why it failed, if it is even all that obvious, and partially, let's be honest, because it's short. I haven't announced what my plan is after this show, but spoiler alert, it's not all failed series. I wonder how many times I will accidentally say that 70s show and if I'll edit them all out. I know I did more than once in yesterday's tiny episode. Okay, let's jump into One Digit's thoughts on that 80s show, The Pilot. The plot summary. On the heels of a breakup, Corey tries out life in corporate America at his dad's company. Meanwhile, his ex, Sophia, hits on his sister, Katie. Back at the record store, he finds himself butting heads with a new co-worker, Tuesday, a punk. Alright, my high point for the episode was record store owner Margaret, the most unique character in my opinion. Also, the record store itself, though I wasn't really frequenting them yet in 1984, really. It cribbed a bit of the spirit from High Fidelity, but as long as it grows from there, that's not a bad thing. Uh, My low point was... The San Diego setting was probably a mistake, in my opinion. One of the big selling points of that 70s show was the Middle America setting. I can see Wisconsin from my house. Literally. Uh, I understand a lot of 80s culture is from the coasts, but not as many people are going to say, I remember the 80s in San Diego, aside from my friend Matt, perhaps. So, uh, who won, who lost? Uh, Corey lost, and I get the feeling the show is written for this to be the case most of the time. It's a that kind of sitcom. All right, next category, is it an anachronism? 
Well, Katie is enjoying a wine cooler while watching the music video for Love is a Battlefield. It didn't seem to work for me, so I did a little research, and my age at the time definitely plays into my perception of this case. In my brain, Bartles and James, or the actors they chose to portray them, started pitching their wares around 1986, and Bruno sang for Seagram's Golden Wine Coolers in 87 or so. But of course, my legal drinking days were still 10 years away in 1984. Wikipedia reports that the wine cooler began in about 1981, and a Vice article told me the Bartles and James guys actually started pitching in 1985. I'd say the one one thing that's anachronistic in this case would be the bottle she's drinking for. In 1984, the primary wine cooler would have been the California Cooler, which originated in SoCal, where the series is set. However, it was sold in a green glass with gold label, similar to an import beer of the time. The wine cooler she's drinking looks more contemporary to the late 80s or early 90s. Runners-up for this category would be Miami Vice and Where's the Beef, both of which hit in 1984, so this episode would have to thread a fairly particular needle for both of them to be relevant enough to make references about them. What worked? Well, they did a good job with the needle drops, which is a must with both the 80s setting and a record store, obviously. They had a certain slice of the 80s down just right. Why did it suck? I don't know, yet. The pilot was very piloty, for lack of a better word. It introduced the characters, gave some flavor of that aforementioned slice of the 80s, but... I didn't much like the slice they chose. If anything sucked, it was the part of the 80s they chose to work with so far. One question I won't be answering is what you should eat while watching it. I'm not sure if Nutty ever watched that 80s show, but she'd be the one to answer that question. Next episode is Valentine's Day, which is partly chosen due to the series being a mid-season replacement, where this was just how things lined up. I predict that Corey will be after Tuesday... Sophia will still be after Katie, Roger and RT may possibly have one-off dates, and Margaret will comment on all of it from the side with a world-weary perspective. Was 2002 too soon to attempt to tap nostalgia for 1984? 1998 was apparently not too soon for 1976 in terms of its predecessor series, nor was 1992 too soon to portray nostalgia for 1976 in a film like Dazed and Confused. Now, by the That 80s Show math of an 18-year spread, we would today have to be nostalgic for 2004, and maybe a target audience of 18 to 24-year-olds feel that's a good idea, but I'll leave those marketing decisions for someone else. And instead, I'll get into That 80s Show, Episode 2, Valentine's Day. It's Valentine's Day. Katie is super into Valentine's Day, but Corey and R.T. are less enthused being alone. A mysterious box of chocolates is at the record store, and while Corey and Tuesday assume it belongs to Margaret, she in turn implies to Tuesday that Corey bought it for Tuesday, then to Corey that Tuesday bought it for him. Roger now says bro a lot. Katie's Navy boyfriend Owen is in town, and she has a very difficult time getting alone with him. Uh, The high point, I'm a little surprised at myself, but the box of chocolates scheme is probably the high point. The show obviously plans a Corey Tuesday will-they-won't-they. 
and this is a contrivance to go forth with that intent, I think what I like is that Margaret was the instigator after having apparently received the box from Robert Plant, according to the end credit scene. But since I assumed she would be an anti-Valentine cynic, I did like that it went a different way. The low point, I would have to say, is Owen the sitcom Lunkhead. Many sitcoms have them. Sometimes they're named George or Dauber or Lowell. I can offer some points to anyone who can name those sitcoms referenced, but those points aren't redeemable toward anything. Owen is kind of like that archetype, but nowhere near as good as any of those guys. He shot for Dullard, but only got up to Dull. All right, is it an anachronism? Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo is prominently referenced, with Owen declaring that having not seen Breakin' 1, he was lost as far as the plot was concerned. However, this being Valentine's Day 1984, it would be a trick seeing that movie, as it was released for the Christmas season in 1984. So in this case, it's an unambiguously anachronistic reference, and also not all that funny. Additionally, Breakin' 1 was released May 4th, so the joke is two times incorrect. Uh, Runner-up for the anachronism category is Herbal Life, which turned out it is not anachronistic and is in fact in the middle of its first upsurge in 1984, making it an ideal reference. What worked? Well, they brought in Owen on shore leave, but otherwise stuck with the core cast for this one, and I like that they stuck with the core cast. Why did it suck? This episode was seriously dull. The few moments of primarily Margaret-based character work did not save it from basically nothing happening over the course of the episode. There's nothing egregiously bad, just a lot of bleh. So the next one up is the third episode of that 80s show, Tuesday Comes Over, which would seem to imply that Tuesday will have some reason to go back to Corey's house. I've got to imagine this will be under some other circumstance aside from just wanting to visit. Well, let's hope it's an improvement over this episode, but considering the episode was a 13 and out, I'm not too hopeful. You can ask many movie enthusiasts about 1984. They can tell you there were a lot of movies released in 1984 that have at least stood the test of time, if not become actual classics. With this episode set around Earth Day, April 22nd, they didn't have many movies released that week, but movies stuck around in theaters longer, so there were a lot of movies released in March. Um, Repo Man, This is Spinal Tap, Children of the Corn, Police Academy, and Romancing the Stone, all released March 1984, among others. But of course, in this episode, they aren't going out, but staying in, in an episode called Tuesday Comes Over. All right, in this episode, Corey and Tuesday are both feeling constrained by their living situations, though admittedly Tuesday's beater car is more literally constrained than Corey's living with his dad and sister. Roger is struggling with the ethics of getting a car sale at any cost to his ethics, and Sophia has no such compunctions in selling hot tubs. Katie is consumed with Earth Day, recycling, and reducing waste. The high point continues to be the record shop, and specifically Margaret. The series might have benefited by ditching some of the other storylines and focusing on this location. The low point is the plot line of Horny RT buys a hot tub. So who won who lost? RT lost. He went through the hassle and expense of getting the hot tub while assuming he would be joined by Sophia, who clearly understood that sex sells. 
uh, under the category, is it an anachronism? Katie knocks on Tuesday's car window and says she's not helping with the ozone problem. It's impressive that Katie knows about the ozone problem in 1984, as the first published research of the ozone hole came out in 1985. What worked in this episode? I liked the farcical plot of Tuesday being invited to Katie's house and then discovering it was also Corey's house, though the shouting match in the bathroom felt a little bit forced. Honorable mention to Sophia burning rubber to get away once the hot tub was installed. Why did it suck? Um, it didn't necessarily suck. I didn't like the hot tub plot. I also didn't like the Roger questionable ethics plot very much. I suppose both fit the 80s theme, though, so I guess they belong. Next episode up is Corey's Remix, which ideally will involve music in some literal way. If it's a metaphorical life remix, they kind of already gave that a shot in the pilot. I haven't really talked about Killing Joke's 80s as the theme song for this show. It is pretty well chosen thematically, obviously. And it actually dropped in 1984, not that exact period accuracy is an absolute requirement for a theme song. I did notice they skipped right past the controversial riff at the song's opening. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go ahead and look it up. 80s by Killing Joke. I'll be right here. Okay, so you can probably see what issue the band might have had with a certain 90s monster hit. I don't know if I'd call it an exact match precisely, and it never went to court, but still. Anyway, it's thematically relevant, as this episode of That 80s Show is about music, titled Corey's Remix. So, Corey is revealed to be a struggling musician in this episode. He is seen working through what seems to be a breakup song. Meanwhile, Roger has an upcoming meeting with his boss, and he's nervous. Katie creates an up-tempo dance mix of Corey's song and gets it played at the dance club to Corey's horror. Add in to all that question, Corey questioning about what coffee he had with Tuesday in the previous episode meant. Then Tuesday meets him at the club and hears the dance mix. So, I think the high point of the episode, really, I mean... Whether Whatever you think about a uh, will-they-won't-they relationship, Margaret continuing to play hapless Cupid, trying to push the two of them together, is, is the high point to me. And the low point is really, it's not really character development to just suddenly mention in the fourth episode, oh, oh, by the way, Corey's also a, a struggling musician. Um, so who won, who lost? I suppose Corey wins, if the metric is how close is he to dating Tuesday. Roger lost, but it's pretty much a foregone conclusion in this case, because they absolutely wrote this episode with Roger losing as an apparent goal. Anachronism, I did not actually find any obvious anachronisms, but they weren't really shooting for the stars with the reference jokes in this episode. They did bring back a car phone joke, and cocaine references came back, but nothing specific there. I wonder whether it's possible they chose a model of synth that was too slimline for Corey, but as they neither named nor showed a brand name or model number, I couldn't say anything for certain. I know when my friends had keyboards, they were chunkier looking, and I'd bet the set designer didn't bother looking for a vintage synth. It's also possible my friends had keyboards that were inexpensive compared to a really high-quality one. That could also be a factor. 
What worked? The car sing-along from the pilot returns, and I have to say it definitely works. I also think Tinsley Grimes as Katie is starting to really settle into the role. Earlier on, she kind of had this uh, Julie Brown thing. Uh, that would be Homecoming Queen's Got a Gun Julie Brown, not Downtown Julie Brown. See, I am an OG 80s kid. Wubba, wubba, wubba. Why did it suck? Uh, it really feels like this series is traveling in slow motion. After that lightning establishment of a will-they-won't-they they dynamic in episode one, they've been forced to slow it way down, or they'll be done for, perhaps. And barely anything happened in this episode beyond that. Add in the low point previously mentioned of the plot-convenient character revelation of Corey as a struggling musician, and it just isn't coming together, but maybe I'm also influenced by the fact that it never does in fact come together beyond a 13-episode run. So the next episode is called My Dead Friend. I suppose it would be a friend introduced and killed off in a single episode, because I don't think they have the guts to kill off a main cast member this early on. It's possible it's a Grateful Dead reference, but eh, probably not. That 80s show, Episode 5, My Dead Friend. I suppose at some point I should have mentioned Kyler Lee, who is possibly the most successful actor to come out of that 80s show. She went on, of course, to play Supergirl's adopted sister, Alex Danvers. Apparently, if you're a fan of Grey's Anatomy, you'd know she's also a series regular on that series. At the nightclub, we see the gang having fun, and we meet Rick. Hi, Rick. Rick lies down on the dance floor and dies. Bye, Rick. The gang is faced with the fact that they barely knew anything about Rick, not even his last name. Plus, Roger only knew him as Silverpants. So, Corey is then taken with wondering Tuesday's full name. There is also a subplot where Sophia tries to seduce Owen and Katie into a threesome, and a subplot where Margaret buys a box of used records off a poor guy who apparently sells to her on a regular basis. In the crate is a copy of the Beatles' Yesterday and Today, with an original rare butcher cover. I'm not sure how much it went for in 1984, but these days a near-mint version can go for about $25,000. Uh, the high point for me is that the main plot line was a strong, relatable plot that wasn't tied to a specific time in history. The low point, um, it's really the, the, the subplots. Sophia is really becoming a one-note character. Seduce Katie. And uh, the uh, Beatles record subplot was okay, but it was still poor compared to that A-plot. So, who won, who lost? I'm picking Roger as a loser out of the main cast. His single focus was finding Rick's cousin, the car dealer, who might have a job for him, and he never finds them. Is it an anachronism? You sell, you goes. Someone in the writer's room really slapped themselves on the back for this singer, and maybe passed it to a PA to check it out, and the facts appear simple. The Yugo is manufactured from 1980 to 2008. This show is set in 1984. That math checks out. However, the Yugo was marketed in the U.S. by a man called Martin Bricklin from 1985 until 1992, and therefore Roger can't sell them because they weren't around in the U.S. yet. 
So what worked? The primary storyline has little to do with the period setting. It's just a story about how well you may not know acquaintances. And that's possibly even more relevant these days than ever before, now that you can have acquaintances around the world who you've never met. Also, specifically, there was the one cocaine joke that was actually good so far. There's a line you don't want to cross when you're partying, and Rick snorted his. Why did it suck? Well, I think, uh... One joke was bad, the RT being called Likes Him Young in a callback to the earlier joke about everyone being known by a trait of theirs instead of their name. This gag was probably never appropriate, but it feels like it aged particularly badly in the last 20 years. So the next episode is Spring Break 84. If you're already on the coast in a warm place, does spring break matter as much? Do all the San Diego students go to Tijuana to get away from the middle Americans traveling to San Diego? Does this show have the budget to depict Tijuana, and if so, how appropriative might it get? Since nobody in the cast is a current student, maybe there are guest stars playing spring breakers. Today we're going to look at episode 6 of That 80s Show, Spring Break 84. I said last time that Kyler Lee was perhaps the most successful performer to come out of the show, and that possibly discounts Glenn Howerton, who plays Corey. I know that he moved on to It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which I haven't seen and, parenthetically, won't be covering in future episodes of this show or any other sitcom. Probably. Uh, from things I've seen online, I had the impression people didn't like Glenn, but it's possible that it's his character and not his performance. But in any case, on that 80s show, he's, what's the phrase, more or less adequate. So in this episode, Katie discovers she's maxed out on her credit card. I know it's the 80s and she's only in her early 20s, but I'd love to be $1,000 in debt. Meanwhile... One of Corey's high school band classmates has changed his name to Raythorn and has become successful enough performer to open for the Smiths in his hometown, San Diego. Katie convinces her dad, who also thinks she's still in college, to fund a fake spring break trip to Cancun, and he writes a $1,300 check. Ray the Rockstar and Tuesday have a long chat, which might be mostly Tuesday toying with Corey, and Tuesday accepts Ray's invitation to his show opening for the Smiths. A bunch of sitcom situations later, Katie confesses to her dad about the real reason for wanting the money, and Corey asks Tuesday out on a date, and not to date Ray. If you like sitcom humor, that's the high point. There are good jokes, situations relating to Katie maintaining her lie about Cancun, Roger has a running physical comedy gag about his slippery pants, that is good though they may use it a few too many times. The low point for this episode is part of what I've said before about what I see as a flaw with the series. The main family of this series is in sunny San Diego, well enough off that RT can take a checkbook out of his bathrobe and casually offer to write a $2,000 check without even thinking about it. Even if you adjust the amounts for inflation, it's not something Red Foreman would ever have done in the original series. There's a smaller subset of people who can actually relate to this kind of family. So, who won who lost? I suppose Tuesday wins. It's pretty clear the whole Ray thing was a means to an end where she pushes Corey to get to actual date stage. Alright, is it an anachronism? Katie asks the cantina band to play some Bananarama, and they break into a performance of Cruel Summer. 
This is pretty questionable. Bananarama had done some promotional appearances in the U.S. market in 82 and 83, but hadn't really broken through. Cruel Summer was released in the U.K. in 83, but didn't break in the U.S. until late June of 84, after this episode's setting, uh, when it was used on the soundtrack of The Karate Kid. So... It's not impossible that Katie would know the band, and it's not impossible for the song to be learned by the cantina performers. It's just really, really unlikely. Uh, What worked? I'm thinking this section usually relates back to the high-low points from earlier. I'll probably be retooling it as I move into the next series in any case. The general sitcom humor was the part that was successful. Why did it suck? I don't think this episode sucked. The low point from before is, I think, a definite factor for the entire series, but I don't think anything was all that egregious at the single episode level. So next episode is Katie's birthday. They haven't specifically said her age, but unless she's been drinking with a fake ID in all the previous episodes, I assume this won't be her 21st. I just hope that Owen can't wrangle another shore leave. That would make three in two months anyway, so how likely is that? Time to move on to episode 7 of That 80s 80s Show. So, right to speculate, it could be Katie's 21st birthday. All the previous episodes with drinking had her drinking slightly underage. I thought it was possible this was before the 21 drinking age mandate, but apparently, since the repeal of Prohibition, California has always been a 21 to drink state. Let's get into Katie's birthday. Katie is turning 21, and it all starts with a big club party thrown by Sophia, who apparently won't consider dating anyone but this one heterosexual girl who has firmly stated in the past she's not looking to change. But just as Sophia starts to try again, Owen appears in the club. The gang goes back to the house for a smaller gathering, where Tuesday arrives with a big bottle of Jägermeister, product placement cash, as a gift though she demands to have it back when she realizes it's a smaller party where socializing will be necessary on a verbal level. Charmingly, she must start with Sophia, and they have an ex-girlfriend slash prospective girlfriend sparring match. This episode is not passing the Bechtel test. Tuesday authentically says her spikes are formed with egg whites and spit. I'm not positive on the spit, but I've definitely hung out with someone with an egg white mohawk back in the day. Roger is unable to move much due to a dance-based foot injury. Margaret drops by to bring Corey some LPs because he forgot to get a gift for Katie, and she's invited to stay by RT, who she appears to have taken a liking to. RT offers Katie a job as director of marketing after she graduates. Following that, Owen proposes marriage. Corey and Tuesday don't see eye to eye about whether she's there to date him or as Katie's friend. Tuesday retreats to the kitchen and Corey follows. They have a spat and then kiss. Tuesday then leaves. Katie laments being confronted with adulthood instead of just partying on her 21st. Job offer and marriage proposal were not in her plan for the night. The job ends up being offered to Sophia. We'll see if that ends up getting plot reset after the episode or if it becomes a story arc. Katie tells Owen they have to wait to get married. The next day, Corey and Tuesday semi-confess they don't know what they're doing. In the credits, Margaret dreams of an almost kiss with R.T., and on waking is just fine with that. The high point is surprisingly Owen. I'm not sure if it's just a case of the writer being better at writing him. It's possible they realized they needed him more well-rounded to be an acceptable suitor. In any case, they seem to have eschewed about 90% of his cluelessness and allowed him to have interplay with the rest of the cast where he is not the butt of the joke. 
The low point, uh, predictably, Corey and Tuesday have an argument and then kiss. It was easy to see coming, and done much better by Xander and Cordy, and before that, better still by Dave and Maddie. Hopefully you won't need me to explain any of those references. Who won, who lost? I guess Roger loses again. He's injured and thinks he's about to get a great new job that's apparently unfairly taken away. Is it an anachronism? Well, I had a hard time with this one. I knew it was a long-standing brand, but I wasn't sure about when Jägermeister began marketing to young drinkers, and I wasn't able to pin anything down. As it is prominently depicted and mentioned by name, it could be more of the 2002 marketing, getting it on the show, than being an authentic reference. But I was still about 10 years out from enjoying any Jägermeister at this point. I also pondered the champagne fountain at the club, but couldn't find anything on when those became popular at all. Crystal Light, and specifically the I Believe in Me slogan, is the only borderline item I could find. If, in fact, that was the jingle the product launched with, then it fits. After beginning test marketing in 1982, Crystal Light drink powder rolled out nationwide in April 1984, just in time for Roger to pick up the catchy jingle earworm. Well, what worked? The writing was on point this time. Owen was not just a moron and was not just there to interact with Katie. Katie and Sophia had a conversation that did not directly involve Sophia hitting on Katie. They even tried out a relationship between RT and Margaret, which makes sense as they didn't seem to be expanding the main cast during this season, not knowing it was the only season. Why did it suck? This one can pretty solidly score in the Did Not Suck column. The next episode is called After the Kiss, and I hope that it will work out to be a funny look at the burgeoning relationship and still involve most of the cast. Well, I'm going to go into the torpedo room and hug a heat seeker, if you know what I mean. After the Kiss, next episode of That 80s Show. After the events of last episode, it turns out all ambiguity is gone. Now that Tuesday and Corey have kissed, they can't keep their hands or lips off each other. Sophia starts the director of marketing job at RT's company and rapidly takes charge. Katie's aerobics instructor is a part-time bartender at the club, and in conversation at the club, Roger gets invited to aerobics class. Tuesday and Corey have gelato, and Corey begins to ask where their relationship is going. Tuesday is agitated about the conversation and leaves... Roger shows his moves off at aerobics, and Katie feels outshone. RT offers Sophia a raise, but insists he's still the boss, to which she says, for now. Roger won't be going to aerobics with Katie anymore because he'll be teaching his own class. Tuesday didn't want to define a relationship and then bring in expectations to be broken. Margaret convinces her that Corey is a nice guy, and Corey and Tuesday settle on an agreement to make the relationship mostly about making out, and just a little bit of talking. Uh, high point, the episode seems to strike the right balance of character plot and 80s elements. This is what I was looking to happen on a regular basis for the show. The low point, it was a little inexplicable that in the titular after the kiss situation, they just continually want to keep kissing, especially as Tuesday seemed at best ambivalent about it in the last episode. I suppose it fits the Xander Cordy model as mentioned last episode. Uh, in Who Won, Who Lost, it feels like everyone won in the end. The episode presented conflicts that all seemed to resolve more or less favorably. Is it an anachronism? Gelato was the only thing that seemed odd, but of course the product itself has existed for hundreds of years. 
I tried to get a sense of food trends with gelato, and one source said that it had peaked in the late 90s, while others say it is still up and coming. I personally had only really visited a gelato shop within the last 10 to 15 years or so. I can't say for sure what foods were popular in Southern California in 1984, so we'll go with not an anachronism. What worked? Well, they used a core cast and mixed and matched them with each other. There was a nice balance of timeless plot lines and 80s elements. Why did it suck? I think we're two in a row of did not suck. The next episode is called Double Date. I am not sure if I'm ready to see Tuesday and Corey out with Katie and Owen, so I'd imagine it would be Tuesday and Corey with one of the other characters paired off with somebody new. Well, I watched the next That 80s Show episode, Double Date, and it equally could have been called Blind Date. Let's get into it. The record store has a new computerized concert ticket system for a moment of amusement when Tuesday enters, sands her spiked hair. Apparently today she would have used cornstarch if she had any, instead of egg whites and spit, as she had mentioned in a prior episode. Roger momentarily hits on Tuesday without recognizing her. Then, once that's cleared up, he says his date for the reggae festival fell through, the titular double date. Tuesday says she'll arrange a new date, though Corey didn't think she knew anyone that would work, admitting he's never actually met any of her friends. Side note, does she still live in her car? Was that ever addressed on screen? Back at the house, Sophia presents RT with actor contracts he failed to sign. He doesn't understand they're for a commercial, and Sophia explains it's a longer-form commercial that RT takes to calling an informational commercial. Once he warms to the idea, he realizes there'll be lots of fit female models on the set, and he wants to be there. Turns out the set is at the college Katie dropped out of and still never told her dad. Tuesday implies to Corey that she's got Roger's date all lined up, then while on a bank errand gets the teller to be the date. Roger and Patty the bank teller appear to be an ideal match. RT decides he's going to work with the cast as a spokesperson. Katie arrives at the set ready to tell her dad about dropping out. She runs into a professor who asks about her dropping out, and the professor says if she hated her accounting major, she should consider changing to environmental science. Roger is tiring of Patty's one-upping his every trait. Corey suggests Roger tries dancing. Tuesday admits to Corey she didn't know Patty ahead of the date. Roger and Patty bond in a dance-off. Katie fails to tell RT she dropped out, but at least she tells him that she hates business and wants to pursue environmental studies. Corey is cross with Tuesday about the whole Patty situation and asks her to warn him before she does anything crazy. Roger disappears all night with Corey's car, and the next morning shares that things got wild with Patty, including handcuffs he's still wearing. They must have been some kind of hobbyist cuffs, if you know what I mean. As Tuesday is able to get them off of Roger's wrist, then she cuffs Corey's hands together behind her back as a joke to end the episode. The high point, I would say Eddie Shin finally got a chance to really shine as Roger, and he kind of steals the episode. The low point, I know it's RT's role to be the pardon-my-French pussyhound, but it felt a little over the top this time around. So, who won, who lost? Looks like Roger both won and lost. Clearly, at some point, Patty cuffed him and was not there when he came to in the morning. Is it an anachronism? Infomercials, in their modern form, were allowed after a revision of FCC regulations in 1984. It's a pretty close thing for them to be up and producing an infomercial already in this episode, so it's a maybe. What worked? Again, it's finding a nice balance between the period-appropriate content and the timeless character interplays. Why does it suck? 
I'm starting to think this series may not have sucked. I haven't looked to see if anyone's done a post-mortem as to why it did not continue after this season, but sucking may not have been the primary reason. So the next episode is Punk Club. Perhaps Corey is finally going to meet some of Tuesday's friends? That 80 show is up to the episode Punk Club. The episode involves a main plot in which Corey fails to get a flyer handed to him by a punk girl handing them out at the record store. Tuesday, of course, did get one, but says she's not likely to check it out even after Corey invites her to go with him. In one subplot, Katie has returned to classes and is working hard on staying caught up. However, the men of the house, primarily R.T. and Roger, continually harp at her about all the household duties she used to solely take care of. There's also a C-plot in which Roger accidentally tears part of his hair out and avoids work or being seen in public. Sophia is encouraged to talk some sense into Katie by R.T., but when Katie tells the list of chores she used to do, Sophia works with Katie to make sure life in the house works out more equitably going into the future. Corey finds Tuesday at the punk club, and Tuesday winds up being torn between caring what people think about her boyfriend and her own self-impression of being someone who doesn't care what anyone thinks. They wind up pretty much agreeing that she will not aggressively defend his appearance to everyone, whether they say anything or not, but there really isn't a resolution presented other than they are not breaking up over this issue. The high point is probably the B-plot, which may actually take up the most screen time. Katie and Sophia have a great rapport together, and it seems entirely absent of that unrequited lusting from earlier episodes. For the low point, um, well, I do get they don't have money for ideal extras in the punk club, but what the hell was all that half-hearted near-miss slam dancing? Come on, guys. At least shell out for a couple of professional stuntmen who can ram into each other in a safe but believable way. Who won, who lost? Uh, everyone kind of wins, or doesn't win, but nobody outright loses. RT and Roger wind up working through an organized chore plan with Sophia and Katie and possibly mature a bit in the process. Corey and Tuesday talk out their differences and aren't mad at each other at the end of the episode. Maybe Roger loses as all his hair is still messed up, and he doesn't seem to have worked out his feelings about it. Is it an anachronism? Well, I knew that E.T. was a safe call, having come out in 1982. I checked on the Michael Jackson Pepsi hair fire incident, and that happened in early 84, making it a spot-on reference for this episode. Footloose, similarly, came out in February of 1984, uh, the only thing I wasn't sure about was the existence of a cordless hair crimper in 1984, but I couldn't easily find any data on when that kind of product might have been introduced. What worked? The plot lines all felt completely appropriate for the characters, and also completely appropriate for the period. But why did it suck? Well, aside from a chore list, it didn't feel like much was resolved. It presented conflicts and issues and then just sort of said, well, everything's fine now. I'm sure Roger's hair will get fixed by the big red episode reset button and he'll be on to something else next time. Next episode is Road Trip, which seems generic enough that I can't really predict very much. I suppose Tuesday and Corey are the ones most likely to be able to get away, assuming that Margaret feels charitable about giving them both the time off. The nightmare episode would be Katie and Owen road tripping alone the whole time. That 80s show took a road trip. Corey and Katie play covers for a family wedding for their whole family. Well, aside from the foremans, they must have been unavailable. 
RT is trying to use Sophia as his date to make his ex jealous, but apparently she didn't make it either. The date is in exchange for letting Sophia stay at the house for three days. Cousin Ted is drunk and says they should be on Star Search. At the record store, Corey and Tuesday are trying to figure out their next date, and Tuesday clearly feels like she does not want to see Ghostbusters. They look at a benefit concert with The Cure, Echo and the Bunnymen, Pat Benatar, and Killing Joke. Margaret reacts badly to news of Benatar. Katie arrives and says Cousin Ted from the wedding, who drunkenly said they should be on Star Search, turned out to be a recruiter for Star Search. Katie ignores Corey when he says absolutely not. Sophia moves in temporarily with a massive amount of stuff. She had to move out of her boyfriend's condo because his wife needed the condo. Roger finds out about Star Search and feels bad he wasn't told by anyone. Katie continues to insist they go on the show. Meanwhile, Margaret continues to avoid Pat Benatar. Apparently, back in the day, she made a big mistake working pyrotechnics for the encore of Fire and Ice, and she blinded the audience and set Pat on fire. Katie guilt trips Corey into agreeing to go on Star Search. They travel to the show, pondering what to do with their appearance money. When they get there, Katie decides they shouldn't perform. Meanwhile, Roger harasses special guest star Ed McMahon. Back at the store, other special guest stars, Pat Benatar and Neil Giraldo, confront Margaret. But it turns out they want to thank Margaret. The accident made them realize they were meant to be together. And at the end of the scene, it's strongly implied Neil and Margaret had a thing going before that. The high point of this episode is probably the special guest stars, and sadly, you can probably guess the low point is pretty much the rest of the episode. Who won, who lost? We all lost having to watch this. Except for maybe you don't. Avoid it if you can. Is it an anachronism? Well, this would have to be June 8th or later, as that's the Ghostbusters release date. Star Search started in 82, so that fits, and Corey is correct that the electric company was cancelled. I was surprised to learn it ended in 77, but there was an agreement that allowed the final two seasons to be repeated continually until they cancelled it for good in 1985. So what worked? They pulled in some guest stars. Why did it suck? Nothing happened. The whole thing just felt like a framework designed to accommodate their guest stars. With an original air date of April 24th, this episode can't have helped in the renewal considerations. Next episode up will be Beach Party. Perhaps they'll be back on track with an actual story, or perhaps they'll just get more guest stars. Well, let's look into that 80s show, Episode 12, Beach Party. Uh, Heads up, if you're watching along on YouTube, the final two episodes on the playlist I'm watching anyway are both listed as number 13, and the actual number 13 comes before Beach Party on the list. But I did catch the error quickly, so I didn't see any bombshell spoilers that could have cropped up. Leading off right away, possibly not directly as the file I had started abruptly, Uh, But leading off right away, Katie invites Tuesday and Corey to her beach party, celebrating Owen returning from a long tour of duty. Since when? He was just in the last episode. How long is there between these episodes? I don't know. It seems strange. After Debbie Gibson does a turn as an over-exuberant customer, it is revealed Tuesday is looking for a new roommate after hers abruptly left. Corey tells Roger he's thinking of moving in with Tuesday, and Roger thinks he's moving too fast. Side note, Patty, the bank teller, is still dating Roger. 
Over at VidX, RT tells Sophia about Cosima Blair, played by Morgan Fairchild, who wants to merge her company with VidX. Later, Cosima tries to seduce RT into merging, if you know what I mean. Janice, according to IMDb, that's Debbie Gibson's character name, confronts Margaret about a warped record and the store's no-refund, no-returns policy. Corey suggests moving in with Tuesday, and she's agreeable. When Corey tells RT, Roger overhears, asking what happened to their plan to live together beachside in a bachelor pad. Roger can't handle this and storms off. It turns out Katie's beach party is actually a beach cleanup that she will get class credit for. But of course, once she and Owen go off to clean a section, Corey, Tuesday, Roger, and Patty all sit down for a drink instead, although as separate couples. Apparently, RT merged with Cosima because he tells Sophia the proposed merger suddenly makes sense. At the beach, the two couples talk amongst themselves about Roger's conflict with Corey. Janice continues her occupation of the permanent record store. Sophia confronts Cosima over the merger, and they get to comically play 80s soap tropes, including a full cat fight. But then Sophia turns the fight into an apparent seduction when RT enters, and he calls off the merger over that betrayal. The beach cleanup has turned back to party with Katie enjoying jello shots with the rest. Corey suggests Roger can still have the beachside apartment solo and they make up. Janice apparently psychoanalyzes Margaret into a breakthrough to discover why she is a bully and then declines a refund and leaves. The breakthrough is either fake or short-lived as she yells at the next guy who comes in. At the beach, Tuesday and Corey talk themselves out of moving in and Tuesday says she loves him too much to mess things up. They kind of confess their love for one another and kiss, ending the episode. The High Point? After last episode, this one features stunt casting done right, with a story written possibly before casting, then getting Morgan Fairchild to play an overblown version of the overblown roles of her past, and Debbie Gibson in a fun role as well. The Low Point? Well, I mean, most of the conflict resolved abruptly, but of course this is a sitcom and not a drama. Who won, who lost? Sophia came out on top of the three business people, winning, improbably. Is it an anachronism? I hadn't heard of it before, but Librium is a benzodiazepine anti-anxiety medication brand name introduced in 1960, just ahead of more widely known sister medication Valium in 1963. Very solidly not an anachronism. According to Wikipedia, which is as far as I'm going to research today, the modern jello shot was invented in the 1950s by musical satirist Tom Lehrer to smuggle booze into a party on a naval base. In any case, they were very popular in the 1980s. What worked? Plotting for story rather than for cast. A good blend of a normal story and a send-up of 80s nighttime soaps. Why did it suck? Well, I'm not saying that it sucked, but I got the sense that the non-renewal was already known on set. Something in the energy where they were seeming wistful even when they weren't doing it for story reasons. Final episode is next. Sophia's Depressed. That's the title. I suspect the merger storyline will either continue or leave some residual effects. I just hope the Katie longing does not return to close this thing out. Let's look, then, at the episode Sophia is Depressed. Corey is awakened by Tuesday at her place, and shortly thereafter by her roommate blasting loud music. Her place has the look of a squat, or an unlicensed rental. At permanent record, the store has been partially wrecked by an electrical fire. 
Katie gets a package at the house, and it turns out to be a fondue set wedding present from Owen's commanding officer. It turns out Owen let his shipmates think they got married, even though she actually declined his proposal. Roger asks Corey what Tuesday's place is like, and it turns out he hates it. Patty comes down for her coffee and meets R.T. When she leaves, R.T. reveals to Corey that he thinks he, quote, had her once. At the store, Margaret has hired a former roadie friend to renovate and repair after the fire. Zeke is played by John Taylor, bassist from Duran Duran. It seems that Zeke and Margaret had a thing going back in the day. Corey suggests Tuesday stay over at his house, and they have a bit of a spat because Tuesday senses he doesn't like the place. They wind up agreeing they will stay at their own respective places this time. Tuesday talks to Margaret, saying she's scared of what she might become if she gets used to the more comfortable lifestyle. At the club, to strains of Duran Duran, a very dressed-down Sophia pounds drinks, and Corey notices. He asks her what's wrong, but she says nothing. Roger feels like Patty is using him for sex, and while he complains, he's not totally against it. Tuesday shows up, toothbrush in hand, ready for a night at Corey's, but when they get there, they are confronted by all the nice, normal domestic life. Late that night, Tuesday tries to slip out of the house, but is spotted by Katie, who is sleeping on the couch to stay away from Owen due to the whole marriage lie argument. In the kitchen, they run into Patty, looking for ice, and then Sophia is at the door. It turns out Sophia is depressed because her sister is getting married before her. I'm wondering if the network dialed back the bisexual crush storyline, and not for the actual reason that it was problematic. They go to Tuesday's place because all the bars are closed. Later, all the guys ponder where the women have all gone. Sophia continues to be down and calls Tuesday's place a dump, which Tuesday takes as a compliment. The renovation at the store is progressing, but when Margaret considers the prospect of installing a waterfall, she decides a fling in San Francisco with Zeke sounds like a more appealing use of the rest of the insurance money. The women all commiserate on relationships and families. Katie talks about how her parents used to be before the divorce and how her dad slept around, when Patty reveals she thinks she slept with R.T. at some point. The point being, their family isn't as perfect as Tuesday thinks. They all go back to the house, and happily ever after... The high point, more great stuff from the characters, everyone gets to go off happy, which is the least we can do knowing that it's all over. The low point, I know what they were going for with audience recognizable music, but is a 1984 West Coast punk who probably listens to Black Flag or the Circle Jerks really going to wake up pumping Twisted Sister? I'm not here to gatekeep on punk's behalf, but I found it far-fetched. Who won, who lost? Well, everyone wins. They certainly weren't going for a cliffhanger to get the show saved. Is it an anachronism? This is kind of an anachronism, just not the kind I usually look for. Owen is depressed about the cancellation of M.A.S.H. However, the final episode of M.A.S.H. aired over a year prior to the setting of this episode, February 28, 1983. More traditionally anachronistic, the Garfield window doll that Tuesday jokes Patty resembles was not introduced until 1987. So what worked? What was a story about people? And the stunt casting was far from obvious. I'm sure a lot of people didn't even know that was him. Why did it suck? It didn't suck. And once again, that wistful note was there. This was definitely the last show they'd be making, and I think they knew it. Altogether, it was the ratings that did in the show. Fox definitely gave it more of a chance than some other series, like Firefly, Wonderfalls, or Drive. 
I suspect audience didn't wind up liking the characters, and while it was nostalgic for a prior decade, I don't think there was as much of an intense nostalgia for the 80s as there was for the 70s. Demographically, I guess that makes sense. The number of people nostalgic for the 70s was larger than the number of people nostalgic for the 80s, and for some reason the kitsch of the 70s was far more wildly re-embraced than the 80s trends, even now with the popularity of Stranger Things these days. You've been listening to the One Idget's Thoughts On podcast produced by Paul Mackey in association with Nimlas Studios. Any short clips of audio from shows is included under fair use for commentary purposes and copyright for that content remains with its original copyright holders. The theme song is Too Good by Jack Mangan and is used by his generous permission. One Idget's Thoughts is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international license. You can find more episodes of this podcast and many other fine podcasts at nimlas.org. You can contact me by emailing idgetcastpodcast at gmail.com or commenting on episodes at nimlas.org. Let's make our